and welcome to a special edition of the McGregor Podcast. Recently on a Wednesday night, as part of our Journey Together ministry, we hosted a hot topic night with Pastor Russell Howard leading. The topic, gender identity. And as you can imagine, it was a very hot topic. The title of Pastor Russell's teaching that night was Identity Crisis. And joining me in the studio right now is Pastor Russell Howard. Welcome, Russell. Hi, Brother Mark. It's good to be here with you. Yeah, and I was thinking you could have actually called this hot topic thinking biblically about identity, right? Because wasn't that really kind of the focus of your teaching that yeah, night? Yeah, yeah, it really is because uh, especially at this at this moment, the cultural noise is so loud and and so counter to to thinking biblically that the, the contrast is really, really sharp. It's a great opportunity to think about thinking biblically. Right, absolutely. You know, so to speak. And really what some of the foundational stuff, especially in part one, as we'll be hearing in just a moment, yeah. is really foundational for almost any cultural issue you might be looking at today. It, it, in fact, you even touched on a few other ones in your opening uh, part, just because of Romans 1 deals with some of those other Yeah, you know, uh, it's... it's uh, b- b- biblical anthropology, and I know that sounds like a bunch of vocabulary, but it's really not. A, a biblical understanding of a doctrine of humanity mm. and an understanding of what happens culturally as a sort of cultural consensus resolves to move away from God, you open the door to all kinds of crazy things. Absolutely, and I think that's where we're finding ourselves as a culture right now. Well, let's go ahead and dive right into that uh, first part of what we'll have as a two-part, and then really ultimately there's going to be a surprise little third part of this uh, series on Hot Topic called Bonus Content. That's exactly right. So uh, join me now as we listen together to part one of Identity Crisis. There's a story that a lot of us learned as children, a folk tale, if you will. It's not scriptural, doesn't purport to be authoritative or inerrant or sufficient or any of the things we would ascribe to God's word. Oh no, this is, this is from the Danish author of such things, Heinz Christian Andersen. There was an emperor I'm going to try to do this without having to read. There was an emperor. He's not named in Hans Christian Andersen's fable, though various later retellings have, have stuck him with names. We don't know what name the author would have had in mind for him. We don't even know the specifics of his geography. Certain elements of the story sound sort of European, and Hans Christian Andersen was Danish, so okay. There was an emperor somewhere, perhaps in Western Europe, and he was known for his, for his spectacular vanity. Not all that interested in affairs of state. He would do what was called of, uh, required of him, trusting his ministers to handle most banal matters. He was pleased to be uh, ruling in a time of comparative peace and plenty. And so he was able to accumulate a massive wardrobe of particularly fine garments, of which he was quite proud. Well, one day, two weavers came to town. Unbeknownst to the emperor or the others in there in the capital, they were actually con men, swindlers. But they said, we're here, we're here to weave a new set of garments for the emperor. And we are so spectacularly skilled 
that if you will bring us the very finest raw materials, the finest thread, the finest yarn that your, your kingdom has, we will weave them into a, a fabulously beautiful cloth of, of remarkable subtlety and design. In fact, we are so skilled that this cloth will have an almost magical property in that it will only be visible to most people. Some will not be able to see it. The exact words translated into English that Hans Christian Andersen used was, anyone who was unfit for his office or unusually stupid would be unable to see this remarkable fabric. So days and weeks went by. The weavers were, were brought all manner of very fine threads and yarns and things, which, by the way, they squirreled away to sell later in their travels. And they went through the motions on their loom. Nothing was there, but they, they cut and they wove and they cut and they wove. And one day, the emperor himself, not wanting to appear too eager, sent one of his most trusted senior ministers to examine the work in process. And to his horror, the senior minister went into the room where they were working, and to his horror, he couldn't see anything. By now, everyone knew that only those who were unfit for office or stupid would fail to see what was so obvious, this spectacular material. Well, of course, he couldn't let on that he didn't see anything left himself to wonder, am I unfit for office or am I stupid? So he went back to the emperor and bragged about the fabric. This went on for another, until finally, after several of the emperor's cabinet had seen and bragged upon the fabric and reported back to the emperor how fabulous it was, the day came for the finished garment to be revealed to the emperor. Imagine his shock when he couldn't see it either. Of course, everyone around him was bragging on it. And he couldn't let on that he couldn't see it. So he, he was told, by the way, that it was of such fine weave that it was, it was so thin and light that it was like holding a, a spider web. You could hardly even feel it in your grasp. Well, he put the stuff, he took his other clothes off, put the stuff on. And there was held a grand processional. And all the people of the town not about to be stupid or unfit for office, praised and praised and praised until in the back a small child, not concerned with appearing stupid, not concerned with appearing unfit for the office of small child, <laughs> cried out, he's naked! <laughs> and so it ends. What in the world has that to do with identity? Yeah. We have come to a place in our culture where we're supposed to pretend Bruce Jenner is a girl. Elizabeth Warren is a Native American. And those are just the big famous ones. We have come to a place in our culture where things that simply are not true 
are expected to be affirmed as true, or one is particularly stupid or unfit for his office. And here we are in a culture-wide emperor's new clothes in which we are all expected in some quarters already with the force of regulation or law, we are all expected to play along or be prepared to be labeled as unfit or stupid. I want to walk you through Romans chapter 8, 1, pardon me, Romans 1, verses 18 through 31. We'll go quickly. I don't have, uh, <laughs> if we were doing Romans on a Sunday morning, verses 18 through 31 of chapter 1 would probably be three weeks. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, go, go fast. Remember that Romans was written to the church in what city? Yeah, y'all handle the pop quiz as well. And what Paul is describing in Romans 1 is a progression that has taken place in the first century at the heart of the Roman Empire and across the, the reach of the Roman Empire. It's not strictly speaking meant to be merely prophetic. However, in this passage, Paul spells out a pattern and progression that while evident in first century Rome was not exclusive to first century Rome. Beginning in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Garment looks pretty to me. Fine cloth, marvelous weave. They suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is, not, this is not a theology of salvation and depravity, mostly tonight. What that paragraph is saying is, while there is not enough truth about God in nature to save, there is enough truth about God in nature to establish a benchmark of truth against which humanity fails to measure and rejecting what can be known about God from just nature further contributes to the condemnation of man. The first, the first step here then is the failure to worship the living God as he is. To observe a sunrise, a starry sky, a thunderstorm, rolled your windows down, now would be good based on what's coming from that direction, I think. To, to observe those things and yet outright reject the notion of a creator God is the first step in a progression. The failure to worship the living God as he has revealed himself even in nature begins a cascade. 
Therefore, in, in, in verse 24, in light of all that, in light of a, 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 a deliberate suppressing of the truth that can be known about God based on what he has revealed in nature, suppressing that because of unrighteousness. Therefore, God gave them up to what? In the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Once you had this broad general failure to worship God as he has shown himself, the next step, the next thing to which God gives the culture over is widespread sexual sin and evolutionary thinking. The creator is deposed. And if there is no creator, then there is no uniqueness to those that are made in his image. And if, and if you and I are essentially orangutans with a haircut, there's no reason we should not behave ourselves in an orangutan-like manner. If, if, we are, if we are most clearly to be perceived as only a click more highly evolved animals, then one ought expect, in fact, one ought insist on the normalization of animal behaviors. And so, really to think of such quaint and unnatural ideas as monogamistic marriage, sexual exclusivity within marriage, oh, come now. What possible justification is there for that sort of behavior? Well, how about that God has said that's what best, what's best? Oh, you... You can't, you can't bring God into a conversation about this. This is more a matter for the sociologists and the anthropologists and the psychologists. Let the theologians go sit in a corner and leave the rest of us alone. Broad normalization of sexual immorality. We've had folks who profess faith in Christ come to be a part of our church. And in the interview process, we have discovered that they are living together, not married. And they act appalled that we find that problematic. And that's close to where we are right now. That's not even out there. Right? How quaint and old-fashioned to think of sex outside of marriage as sinful. Clunk, clunk. And once God gives you over to that, and that becomes the warp and woof of cultural and societal norm, what's the big deal? What's wrong with you that you would think there's anything wrong with that? Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men 
and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Once sexual sin isn't sin, and that is our cultural consensus, then homosexual behavior is not sin. As night follows day, homosexual behavior is sinful? Oh, come now. It's the 21st century. Surely we are more enlightened than that. Surely we're not so bad. I mean, that, that, that very nice couple that lives right down the street from me are such sweet people and they're, they're bothering anybody. You see how the how the water temperature has risen around us to the point that it, it almost sounds awkward. Well, unless you're quoting scripture and allowing the truth of God to be the truth of God. What happens once that which the Bible calls shameful and unseemly is the sort of thing that, well, we just all have to accept it as normal because after all, here we are. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, fascinating that contempt for parental authority ranks on that list because respect for parental authority is one of the spines of an upright culture. First place we learn how healthy authority is to function in our life is in the company of our parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. A comprehensive, as I've said on the screen behind me, a comprehensive debasement, deceit, the invention of evil. Where does our present topic, identity, fit into this? Any sane perception of identity begins as in our culture would have been universally accepted not that long ago as a beginning point, identity was rooted in ontology. Now for those of you who have not had the joy of sleeping through, I mean taking college psychology or philosophy, pardon me, ontology is that branch of philosophy that is concerned with the is Ness, I-S-N-E-S-S, my word, the isness of a thing. The ontology of a thing is that which is. 
This is a plastic chair, therefore it is not a house cat. That is ontology. And an ontological philosopher will come up with what sound to him like sane and sound arguments that one can't possibly know whether this is a plastic chair or a house cat. But for most of us, ontology is pretty intuitive. And, and for, the, for the vast stretch of any of, of, of civilizational history that any of us would know about, the identity of a person was rooted in their ontology. That which is, is. That which is of me, is. And for those who were, who were followers of Christ, that ontology was further informed by biblical truth. No one would have believed as recently as the turn of the century, and some of you are young, and when I say recently is the turn of the century, you elbow each other and go, my, he's old. But for many of us, the turn of the century is not that far back. No one would have believed as recently as the turn of the century that in our culture, we would need paragraphs to define what gender is. That we would need open-ended definitions to define any number of ontologically evident characteristics. To identify oneself used to mean take out your driver's license and say, see, I'm, I'm Russell. To identify was to show your passport or your driver's license. Now to identify is to declare whether you are a, a upper middle aged to young senior adult white guy and therefore not a ficus plant. So in, in our journey through Romans 1 as a culture, we have moved from an identity, a, an idea of identity rooted in ontology, the actual istness of a thing, biblically informed for the believer, to now identity is rooted in psychology. What I am is no longer rooted in what I am. It is rooted in what I psychologically gen up as self-definition regulated only. And by the way, this is highly desirable that my identity be regulated only by my unbound whimsy. So that when that second or third grade child identifies as a boy, though she is plainly a girl, not only must that not be corrected, but it must be protected up to and including not disclosing to the parents what's going on in many school systems, including, for example, Lee County, Florida. Romans 1, 18 through 31. If I ask most of you to, to grab a sheet of paper, I'm not going to ask you to do this. In your head, 
In your head, right quick, define gender. Don't write it down, but just form up. Your def- if you were asked in an unguarded moment, hey, can you, not, not just can you tell me what gender you are, can you define what gender is? It would take most of you three seconds and a couple of words. This is the World Health Organization's definition of gender. This is why in an interview, when a political figure is asked, can you tell me what a woman is, they haven't memorized all that yet, so they can't. This is not speculation. This is not science fiction. This is the definition. The characteristics, the gender is the characteristics of women, men, girls, and boys that are socially constructed. Forget ontology. Forget that which is. It's all social construct. This includes norms, behaviors, and roles associated with being a woman, man, girl, or boy, as well as relationships with each other. All of that is social construct. As a social construct, gender varies from society to society and can change over time. So my gender is absolutely a product of my own psychological brainstorming. And gender itself is the assemblage of all of that as a sociological mechanism. You ended this first part with a definition of gender from the who as an example of what happens when we start rooting our identity and psychology instead of God's word, or really for that matter, just rooting in plain common sense that has survived for several, several millennia. Uh, So talk to me a little bit about why you wanted to use that definition. What were you trying to communicate there? I I wanted to find a, a succinct, reasonably succinct, and, and, uh, tragically, but centrist. Uh, who, who out there is saying these crazy things about gender, and and is is what they're saying consequential? Does it matter that somebody is somebody saying this for real, or is this just you know a conversation in the uh, faculty lounge at Harvard, where honestly, who cares? Uh, but, but we all have seen the last couple of years, the World Health Organization cast a pretty big influential shadow, mm-hmm. and they do. Yep. And this is their definition. So tragically, it's kind of as centrist as it gets. Yep. Very mainstream. Very mainstream. Yeah. Well, that was just part one, and uh, we want to thank our listeners for listening to part one, but there's more. We have a part two that'll be coming out one week from now, and then as we mentioned earlier in the introduction that we've got kind of some bonus uh, material, uh, part three that's going to actually be a Q&A, and we'll explain a little bit more about that in our next episode. So thank you so much for listening to part one, and hope you come back next week to hear part two of this Hot Topic series on identity.